The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. War in Europe. Hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians continue to die each day in a conflict begun by Russia's invasion more than three months ago. And there's no end in sight. So what about the organisation set up over 70 years ago precisely to defend Europe against an attack from Moscow? NATO is sitting this one out. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says they're doing what they can. NATO is a defensive alliance and uh, the war in Ukraine is... uh Uh, President Putin's war. Uh, This is a war uh, that he has decided to conduct against an independent sovereign nation. And uh, what NATO uh, has been doing for many years is to support the sovereign independent nation in Europe, Ukraine. Uh, uh, train, assist and advise uh, and equip the Ukrainian armed forces. That is what NATO allies and NATO have uh, done for many years. Uh, this is not a threat to anyone. This is not a provocation. And, uh, and that is what we continue uh, to do. In the last few days, the leaders of the world's biggest and oldest military alliance have been meeting in Madrid. Only three years ago, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, said NATO was brain dead. I knew that my, my statements created some reactions and shake a little bit. A lot of people, I, I, I do stand by. But some now say Ukraine is the dose of adrenaline NATO needed. Finland and Sweden are queuing up to join. So this week on the Y Curve, we're asking why is NATO still on the sidelines with Ukraine? Should it do more? Is NATO's lead member, the US, re-engaging with its European allies after years of pivoting to Asia? And today we're asking what is NATO's role? Is it doing enough to save Ukraine? And what are the risks it will have to actually fight the war with Moscow that it was set up to prevent 70 years ago. Welcome to the Y-Curve. The Y-Curve. Yes, this week as NATO meets to discuss what next in the war in Ukraine, we've already heard that NATO is beefing up its rapid response force to 300,000 troops from around 40,000. That is a big increase, about an eightfold increase. So things are certainly moving fast. And it seems Sweden and Finland will join the alliance. Turkey appears to have backed down from blocking their membership. And of course, you know, we know one of the key principles of NATO is that an armed attack on one member nation would be considered as an attack on all. Although Russia has sort of turned that around this week, haven't they? Saying that if anyone tries to attack or take back Crimea with the help of any NATO member, then that would mean war with all NATO members. So the rhetoric is really notching up, uh, presumably because of this NATO get together this week. So let's look at all of that with Defence and Security Editor at the Daily Telegraph, Dominic Nichols. Dom, welcome to the programme. Hi, guys. Hi, Phil. Hi, Roger. Uh, good to have you. Uh, so I guess the, you know, the obvious first question is, what is the role of NATO these days? Well, it is, as it has always been, a defensive alliance. The um, the founding idea is in, enshrined in Article 5, which, which says an attack against one is an attack against all, and, and that if uh, anybody has a go at one of the allies, then uh, everyone else will pile in to a greater or lesser degree as they, as they can. That has survived the test of time. NATO has morphed slightly over the years. It's, it's taken on a, a kind of, um, it's opined on global issues, um, but at its, at its heart, it is a, uh, as, the, as the name suggests, it is centred on the North Atlantic area. And um, the, the principal sort of adversary in that time, as we've seen in very in recent weeks, is is Russia, and that's that's what it that's what it, why it was set up 
Um, that's that's why it is there. Re-energised, as you say, now um, after some some decades of, of of a little bit of drift, should we say? That's worth exploring. But yeah, no, it's back to its founding but principles it, now. I'd say, but it's being tested a little bit, isn't it? In in those principles, in that it's there to defend each other. But here we have a situation where someone who's not a member would like, obviously would love to be a member, uh, and it's you know it's it's trying to stick to those principles while helping out, which is why we're we've got this uh, sort of proxy war going on. It's in a a tricky space because it it is very clear that it, it will only come to the aid and when i say it of course it's made up of 30 different sovereign nations all of whom get a vote here i mean nato can't can't take a decision and direct the uk the us or any other allies to go to war tomorrow so but, but so nato is, is a is a, a tricky organization and it's very, it's hard power it is it it is um made up of of allies and it is defensive in nature and yet when it's challenged over uh, values and um, ideals that are held by by all the allies to a greater or lesser degree, when those th- those values are challenged, as we've seen in the war in Ukraine, NATO f- has felt, as we saw in the in the Balkan Wars, for example, that it it, it should step in. That the, the idea that might is right is not is no longer applicable in the in the uh, 21st century as it, as it wasn't towards the end of the 20th century. And NATO, so NATO feels like it, it should do something. But, but, Dom, it's more than that in this case, isn't it? Because it is an actual threat to actual members that they see there. I mean, yes, certainly principles are important with regard to Ukraine, but it's not difficult to see that Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland are all seeing Moscow as a very potential real threat to them, NATO members, right now. Yes, and after the first invasion of, of Ukraine in 2014, NATO came up with, with a mission called Enhanced Forward Presence, which saw a battle group from taken from uh, other NATO allies, a, a battle group of about 600 p- personnel uh, stationed in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland. Since the invasion, that's now been extended to another four states down down uh, towards the, the, the rest of the eastern flank. And those, uh, those battle groups in the north have been bolstered. For example, Britain is responsible for the battle group in Estonia. So we normally have, uh, have one regiment's worth of, uh, of people, tanks and warrior infantry fighting vehicles. We've kind of got two there. And there's some talk about, well, should that be permanent or should instead of, instead of a battle group, should it be a brigade? And there's a lot of idea at the moment in NATO that this idea of having a tripwire along the eastern flank is is no longer appropriate because the allies there are saying, well, hang on a second, I don't want to be a tripwire. A tripwire implies that you'll come to my aid um, after 180 days once I get invaded. I'd, I'd rather not be invaded if it's all the same to you. So so instead of just having a, a light footprint, there's talk of, well, should should each of these battle groups be done to a brigade about three times the size? So there's a lot of debate at the moment in NATO about how it does deterrence and the the geographic center is 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 moving east shall we say especially if finland and sweden do join and and the uh, baltic states the nordic states have been much more clear-eyed about the threat from russia in recent years and they want more hard power so there's this, this idea that that nato has been reluctant to um to confront russia or uh, has gone for a um uh, a deterrence model of de- deterrence by by punishment, i.e. if you do that, then we will do this. A lot of people are saying, well, it should move to a, a, a stronger deterrence posture and, and, and say, well, be, be so deterrent in your force construct that they don't, you know, an adversary doesn't take you on in the first place. So there's a lot of debate at the moment in NATO about not so much what it's for, but how it achieves it. Let, let me ask you then, Dom, because uh, one of the problems with all this, I suppose, is the strong potential that what is now a proxy war 
by the, the kind of advanced uh, level of, of, of readiness that you've been talking about, the prospect of actual war comes closer almost inevitably, doesn't it? I mean, deterrence is one thing, but when you're actually there nose to nose, boot to boot, if you like, uh, with Russia, the prospect of actually fighting a war, which is what we're all trying to avoid, I guess, uh, comes closer. It does. It do- absolutely does. Uh, and NATO understands the risks here, I, th- I think. Very, uh, the, the debate about supply of equipment is very interesting. So you might remember MiGGate from a couple of months ago, where Poland wanted to supply, I think it was about a dozen MiG-29s to Ukraine, and were hoping to be backfilled from the US by, by F-16s. And this was deemed an escalatory step too vast, too far. It was deemed it was, it was going to be too provocative to Putin, and these these MiG-29s would have would have would um, uh, elicit some a much harder response from Russia, possibly even attack. On NATO, do you think that attitude is shifting now? Well, I mean, it's interesting in that the, the debate on heavy weapons, so heavy artillery, longer range, better, more precise weapons, that's now shifted, and we're seeing high Mars, a high mobility artillery rocket system, and multiple launch rocket systems being sent into Ukraine. Now they have a much greater destructive power than a MiG twenty nine. Of course, it, also, it depends what you fire your rockets at, but but generally speaking, one one MiG twenty nine fully bombed up is not as is not as destructive as a HIMARS system or an MLRS system. So this, this idea earlier on in the war about what was escalatory and what was deemed provocative to Putin, not only did it give him a vote where he, where he, he, he shouldn't really have had one, but it also we, we've kind of moved beyond that now, as in, like I say, in terms of what you can actually do with these weapons. So NATO does seem to have moved on, um, although notable no main uh, fighter jets have been sent, spare, spares have, and training for pilots and what have you, but um, but there's not been a repeat of of the MiG-29 affair. But no, NATO is trying to find a way through uh, and see w- w- what uh, what line, w- where is the line Putin draws now over uh, that he would be prepared to cross to take on NATO. Um, it, it's it's highly unlikely, highly unlikely that NATO, that Putin would seek direct confrontation with NATO. But then it was highly unlikely that he would invade Ukraine on February the 24th. He did it. Well, absolutely. Very, very few people thought it would actually happen. And it's, and it's. I mean, if you look at the map, I mean, it's obvious what he's going to do next, isn't it? If he's, if he's there trying to say, well, OK, let's expand Russia to, you know, the, the former Soviet uh, era, or at the very least, let's let's secure a couple of seaports, uh, you'd be looking at Kaliningrad, uh, Kaliningrad, wouldn't you, and say, well, hang on, here's a... Uh, an isolated Russian province on the on the Baltic coast. You've got to get through Lithuania to get to it. So uh, let's start working on that one. Yeah, I mean, and you don't need to be a master strategist. You don't need to have played Risk since you were 12 years old. You don't need to have, have looked... <laughs> I was very good at that, by the way. I was brilliant at Risk in my... <laughs> Terrible. Um, but, you know, we we don't need to second-guess this. He's he's done he's done our thinking for us. His Peter the Great speech of, of a couple of weeks ago, I mean... The mask. If the mask didn't slip, it, it was sort of ripped off his face and cast across the the floor with with great aplomb. I mean, he he made it absolutely clear in that speech in in Russia that this is not about uh, denazification or drug dealers or or NATO encroachment. He made it very clear this is about territorial gain and going back to the old days of the Soviet Union and and land. He's looking at geography. He's playing risk. Basically. He's, seeing, he's seeing bits he wants to gobble up. So he's very clear that this is about land and trying to reclaim territory. Never mind that you know, Kaliningrad used to be Konigsberg and was part of Prussia and Germany, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. I mean, he's, he's very selective from history about which bits he, 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 he says were part of the Soviet empire. And do you think perhaps that 
what you're talking about there may lie behind the change that we've seen, quite radical change, in two leading members of NATO, France and Germany, seen as extremely reluctant to uh, to, to give weapons to the Ukrainians and, and perhaps on the wing of saying, oh, shouldn't we compromise, provide Putin with a, a way back? And certainly Ukrainians I've been talking to, Ukrainian friends have said that has actually changed in the last couple of weeks when the, when the French and German leaders went to uh, Kyiv quite recently. Suddenly, the impression was, OK, they're back on board. And maybe that's because they realise what you're saying uh, about the nature of the Putin threat. I think they've been forced to. Germany in particular has had a, has had a rough ride. I mean, for me and, and others about the, the uh, lukewarm response in terms, of, in terms of arms supplies initially. I mean, they are now supplying, have promised to supply multiple launch rocket systems, have promised to supply the Gepard um, anti-air weapon, very capable quite old, but very capable piece of equipment, twin 35 mil cannons that, that will do for helicopters, drones, and any fast uh, fast jet that's holding a holding a straight and level profile. I mean, you know, they are very, very capable pieces of equipment. But I've, I, I was, I've said Germany have, have had some questions to answer on this. But if you look at the, if you look at how Schultz has had to turn the super tanker of domestic German politics around into this much more martial stance, I mean, it, we are 100 and, what have we now, 125 days in, into the war, uh, 126. I have to do my maths, take my shoes off and start counting. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's four months. <laughs> yeah, quite. Got lots of taste. Um, but, you know, I mean, he, he's had a tough time to, um, to change decades of German policy. France, less so. Um, but equally, France have been, have supplied the Caesar 155 millimeter self propelled artillery piece, another very, very capable piece of heavy artillery. So France have been doing a few, some bits and pieces. Uh, I mean, they've been, some of the comments from Mr. Macron and, and the, the, it, saying that you should always keep a keep an open open line to Russia. It's always better to talk than fight. I mean, yeah. yeah he was very much a phone a friend for a while for Putin. It seemed, yeah. didn't he? he seemed to be on the phone all the time too. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting you should never try and, you never try and uh, talk, but uh, at what point does that become... Um, be, you know, a useful idiot as far as Putin is concerned. So, you know, these guys are struggling with their domestic politics, struggling a bit with, with the historical politics. I mean, I, it, it has been such a shock to the European security architecture, what Putin has done. Um, even those that, that have been warning about it, and I say the eastern flank, the Nordic states, um, Baltic states, much more clear-eyed than, than many others. Um, I mean, it still took them by surprise. Uh, they might not have they might have expected something, but I mean, a lot of people were saying they didn't expect the speed or ferocity or the, or quite frankly, the, the inept nature of the invasion. That's been the saving grace, hasn't it? Out. So does, it, does this mean then that, you know, we are going to spend a lot more? So, I mean, you know, Donald Trump, of course, his bugbear was that the rest of the world wasn't spending as much on defence as they were. Uh, and if you look at Germany, what, one and a half percent of uh, GDP, uh, according to NATO's own numbers, you know, compared to three and a half percent in uh, uh, in the United States, we're 2.3 percent for the UK. We're one of the good ones in terms of, you know, 2.9 percent for Greece, 2.3 percent for Estonia. Uh, but most of uh, the NATO members are spending well below 2 percent. So I'm sort of assuming that, you know, that the first outcome out of all of this is defence spending worldwide by NATO members is going to uh, move up quite a quite a notch. Um, you'd hope so. I mean, now the numbers are going in the right direction, but they they they, sh- they should have been there anyway. And the, these are, these are policy commitments. Um, no one can hide from the threat now. It's not as if you. Uh, it's a sunk cost. Many people think that defence is is a break glass in emergency type of uh, department of state, and you don't actually need to do anything right right up to the the point of uh, of war. Well, firstly, 
that that's a failed argument. I mean, you you you, you that just can't can't work. And secondly, you, you can never say never anymore. I mean, Putin did invade Ukraine on February twenty fourth, and and has made these statements about the other the other states in the former Soviet Union. So, defence spending in those uh, countries that are under the the NATO two percent minimum uh, should go up. And they're making the right noises. I mean, yet yet to see if everyone does does get up there. Um, and it's also a way of worth thinking about. Well, what what does defence mean, and and where does the money where does the money go? And you know, in Britain, we we're not entirely blameless here. There was some some chat about well, how much of your pension contributions are you actually counting in that in that percentage? And so, if you take that out, are you actually are you at two percent or you're slightly under? So you know, there's d- different ways of, of of cutting the cake. But I mean, nobody can say. Now's the time to cut defence spending, and, and we've been we've been lavishly sort of fire hosing this cash around NATO willy nilly. I mean, this is simply not not the case, and, and no, nobody is making that argument. To be but then, you know, good luck to them if they try. I mean, I suppose one uh, question I think is the back of some people's minds is that all this the stuff we're sending to Ukraine and the others uh, around Europe are doing as well, and the Americans comes from our own stockpiles. Is there a moment where we say, "Hang on a second, we're getting we're getting a bit thin on our own uh, stocks by sending all our top and best weapons to Ukraine"? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there will be a point. I've been asking that question, and I wasn't expecting an answer, quite frankly. Nor, nor did I get one in terms of operational security. And MOD are not saying how much is left or how long it takes to produce an N-law missile or a, or a you know, javelin anti, anti-air missile or, or what have you. Um, it has shone a light on an area of defence procurement that is that's very heavily in that boring but important category, and that is stockpiles and um, and the supply chain and the relationship between the, the Ministry of Defence and industry. The current and uh, relatively uh, new chief of defence staff, Admiral Tony Radikin, he's um, he's very clear that, that there needs to be a lot more money sp- spent on stockpiling and uh, and that and that link with uh, with the supply chain, um, as is the defence secretary. He said it as well, Ben Wallace. So so this is not this is not um, unusual. However, there is a there is a, a tendency in the military if they get a new wadge of cash to go and spend on stuff, they go and invest in research and development which is always good they go and buy the newest newest shiny thing which is yeah, okay pretty pretty good i suppose because it's because it's new what they don't do is generally is they don't sort of put a load of cash into all the all the boring bits you don't see behind the scenes that you may actually never use but come the day of the race you you plumbing well need to get your hands on yeah so the, this figure of you know how much is spent what proportion of gdp i guess the 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 thing from the public's point of view that they've had difficulty getting their head around is that number, you know, how much how much of that is uh, is, is spent on defence versus other essential services? So that three and a half percent that they're spending in the US is about as much as they spend on on state education, which sounds horrendous. And you can understand why there'd be uh, reticence on the part of the public in this country and, and, and in Europe, because there's not been much need or much call for it. But I wonder whether that attitude is shifting now. I mean, it's sad that it's had to shift. But I mean, it, 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 you know, obviously, we've all been shocked by what's what's happened in Ukraine. And we realise now we do have to spend money on this. Sort of yes, stuff. but not everybody has to spend their money on everything, and that's what an alliance is is about. And that's why those that uh, I mean, it's a bit like taxation; those with the broadest shoulders should, should carry the heavy, heaviest load. But that that's not to say that some other nations have some very capable, if niche, uh, areas of, of particular interest that their their domestic um, industry, academia, R and D foundations are are not are, have put forward. So. So across the, the alliance, you want to be able to have 
an effective defence and an, an effective answer to every every form of problem from humanitarian up to conventional war fighting and indeed nuclear war fighting. But that doesn't mean that everybody has to do everything. And I think NATO has a much better idea of, of who can and should do what now. So is it is it NATO all the way now? Uh, because there is the, the danger is, of course, that NATO has been dominated so much by the US because they, of course, say, well, we're, we're putting the most money in and we're, you know, leader of the free world. Uh, and everyone almost has to kowtow, even though, you know, there's got to be a, 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 an agreement generally in what direction they take. U.S. is leading the way there. What happens in a situation like this if U.S. just goes, actually, we're a bit bored with that war now. We feel as though it's not affecting us as much as it's affecting Europe. We're going to lessen our involvement and, uh, and, and NATO takes a step back, whereas the European members are being, well, no, actually, we want to do more. I mean, is that part of the problem with NATO? It's not a, it's a, it's not a, a unified force, as you said at the very beginning. You know, it's, it's got members. It's a, it's a democratic force. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first point to note is that differences of opinion are good and are, and are healthy up, up to a point. And after that, only do they become sort of fractures and cracks in the alliance and rows and all the other headlines you want to see. And, of course, all the headlines that Putin would be very happy to try and stick a crowbar in and and uh, and leave her leave her apart get the, make those gaps wider so when we see these debates out in out in the open um putin's very clear to say aha is it, the, the alliance is collapsing um whereas that's yeah you know, it's far from the truth this is what if you put 30 30 people in a room you're going to get a lot of different opinions that's what a good healthy democracy does but the other thing to to remember is that a lot of these big decisions about whether or not to to support Ukraine and if so how and how much and for how long that's not NATO it might be exercised through NATO mechanisms in terms of physically moving some of this equipment uh, into Ukraine uh, providing the training of the personnel that need to be need to then go and use those those uh, capabilities but these are national decisions and, and national decisions are separate from NATO decisions. So it's not it's not to suggest that um, any any country that might want to um, take a uh, a, more, a a less forward leaning stance, should we say, is less forward leaning, backward leaning. Not quite sure. Anyway, <laughs> leaning um, around anyway. Yeah, leaning, we were wobbling about a bit, a bit of a weevil, uh, weevil, um, a NATO weevil. I mean that 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 is that's a national position. That's not necessarily NATO's position. So NATO. Essentially, since since NATO was formed, it's been in crisis. It's, there's always been debate about, oh, what's NATO for, and has it got five years to live? It's got to prove itself in the next five years, or NATO will collapse. I mean, that has been the the example of NATO since it was it was it was first created, and now I think it's firmer than ever in terms of what it's for and the threat that it's that it's facing. But some of these bigger decisions. Are, are national decisions, uh, albeit enacted through the mechanisms of NATO. Now, Dom, I, I, well, the next bit I want to come on to really is, is, is we can talk a lot about the theory, the practice, in the sense we are a lot of weapons are going into Ukraine, uh, as you say, on a national basis, perhaps rather than NATO, although some NATO coordination. Is it enough? Because in the end, if this battle is lost, if this war is lost, if, if Putin can at some point declare victory, if Ukraine is forced to make concessions, a lot of people will read into that, uh, I suppose, something about the strength of the NATO nations as well. I mean, what's your sense at the moment in military terms uh, as to whether Ukraine is getting enough to be able to sustain itself uh, and, keep, and keep Putin at least to a, a standoff, if not actually uh, force him into defeat? Well, winning and defeat are very loaded terms. Uh, I mean, if you look at the where the lines are at the moment on the map of Ukraine, Russia has 
has lost it lost strategically it's not been able to cut off the head of the ukrainian leadership install a client regime um etc cetera, etc cetera. even if even if it allows ukraine to exist as a sovereign state it's no longer it's not a buffer a buffer state of of russia so it's failed in that endeavor it's uh, failed to cut off the the south completely um that's why odessa was so vulnerable and and has been de- defended so heavily and why the black sea is critical and snake island is critical because if if ukraine lose Odessa either through amphibious assault or or by any other means, then then they are they they do not their main economic lifeline is cut off. So what what's Russia achieved here? Well they've they've managed to extend the the boundaries a little bit from where they were in 2014, but it's come at such enormous cost. So you've got to wonder what what Russia has got out of this. I mean they're going to be international pariahs now for decades, Putin in particular. So what what's Ukraine got to do to win? We've well, just got to hang on, basically, for now. That, I think, is why there was such a fight over Severodonetsk. I mean, a large industrial plant there, but no major, major transport hub, no major political hub. But what it was doing was soaking up Russian capability, the same as the, the fighters down in the Azovstal plant in Mariupol. They put up a staunch resistance for weeks when it had very little tactical significance, virtually no strategic significance, and yet they held on there and 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 bled the Russian military force, basically. So, so they, you think Ukraine can hang on? You think it actually, I mean, there's been impression, obviously, of Severodonetsk, of a select pullback. But you think actually months, weeks, years possibly ahead, it will hold the line? Because there's still territory lost. There's still territory lost, isn't there? Even if we finished where we are now, Russia could say, well, we've gained territory. Yeah. Well, look, it's not mean, been Putin a- controls his media. He can declare victory tomorrow if he wants. He can say whatever he likes. <laughs> he can get out of this. We talk about saving his face or Putin talk about well, don't humiliate him. Listen, he, he controls that. It's not up to us to, to have to do that. He will spin it through his media any way he likes. So we don't need to worry about any of that. So um, well, can, you, can Ukraine hang on and win? Yeah, possibly with the, with the amount of weapons and supplies and training that's going in there. But that's not to suggest that if they, if they weren't, that there's going to be some mass armoured breakout by Russia and they're going to be at the Dnipro River in 48 hours. I mean, they've shown themselves to be tactically and strategically inept. Their equipment is old and broken. They're having to get old men uh, back into uniform. They are not able to piece together any particular um, military advances. We, we think General Dvornikov, who was, who was put in overall charge after the chaos of, of, of them being kicked out of the north of the country, we think he's been sacked himself. Um, so they're just they're not able to operate as an army, as as a military. There seem there seem to be a number of different army campaigns going on, and an air force campaign, and then something happening down in the Black Sea. It doesn't really seem to be too coordinated and 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 working out what's the priority and how you're going to get there, and then apportioning resource to that, and so on and so forth. All the other lectures that I slept through at Staff College, but you know, I mean, they, they, they've just shown themselves to be just a bit rubbish, quite frankly. And so even if Ukraine do not get these heavy weapons and the training. The idea that Russia has the capability, physically has the has the personnel and the equipment to, to drive west in a mass armoured thrust and get to Kiev and, and take over the country, I, I just find it fanciful. Now, that's not to say they can't do a huge amount of damage in terms of killing people and denuding uh, Ukraine's economic viability in the meantime. And that's kind of what we see with these these artillery strikes in population centers and missile strikes of against um, 
against areas of very dubious military value. So there is still a huge price that Ukraine may have to pay for hanging in there. And that that leaves room for the arguments about, well, maybe they should should try and do a deal now. Trouble is, neither side is going to do a deal. No no negotiations will start in earnest until until, um, at least one side, and preferably both, feel that they will gain more from negotiations than they will from the battlefield. And at the moment, I think Ukraine feels that, that it is it is gaining on the battlefield, gaining firstly by just existing and holding the line or allowing only very small incremental advances by the Russian uh, force. And on the Russian side, I mean, they, they are not, they are not um, progressing much at all, but no one's, no one's prepared to turn around and say this isn't working. So they're not going to say we need to negotiate so at the moment, both sides still see the result, the, the answer being on the battlefield. So how do we ensure that this doesn't happen again? How do we ensure that NATO is operating more efficiently? You talked about NATO really, you know, the decisions are made by the individual members. So one, and obviously Europe is the uh, is, is a collective of countries, but it's also a union of countries as well. You know, and there was talk in the past about, uh, and it, this idea was largely poo-pooed, but the idea of a of a European army. But if Europe was a, you know, collectively a NATO single entity, which was able to coordinate how it spent its money, where where it resourced, what sorts of defence, where, uh, where it did the research, where it built stuff, uh, where the armaments went, it could have a more coordinated approach than a series of individual countries, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it might do, but it, but it wouldn't have the budget. Um, I mean, NATO does have some of its own kit. It's got some, some long-range surveillance drones that, that NATO owns that, that does not is not provided by member states but if they but if they're pooling their money if we if, if every european country said right we're going to get up to that we're going to match uh, i mean this is fanciful but we're going to match that three and a half percent of gdp that the u.s is managing then you'd get up to you know similar size gdp for the u.s and europe you'd get up to the similar sort of you know we'd, i think we'd get a 15 or 20 percent yeah the, the Ger- germans could afford it clearly yeah so uh, you know if, if if there was a commitment to do it would it make more sense if you're spending more money to try and coordinate it and uh, not necessarily advocating a, a European army? But it's an interesting point of discussion, isn't it? Is, can you get more coordination if you said, well, OK, you know, Europe, Europe has been uh, uh, really running NATO in effect. Let's try and uh, shift the balance of power because the real concern is on our neighbor, is on our doorstep. Yeah, I, I don't think that, that would get through the domestic politics of all the, the alliance members, but also the idea that, that NATO has got this wrong and, and deterrence has failed, I think, is... Is a is flawed because um, since NATO has existed, no NATO state has been has been attacked. Um, mm. Okay, you could you could talk about cyber, and that's an interesting area, and and, and that's a massive area actually. Uh, but in terms of the, the the hard power, then NATO kind of worked. These debates about well, what does deterrence? What posture do you want for the deterrence outcome that you desire? That that is a live debate, um, as I've as I've described. So. There are ways of doing it, but but NATO in it, in and of itself, I don't think would look at it right now and say, "Oh, fellas, you know, we got this one wrong. We got we got to go back to back to um, you know square one and start yeah. again." NATO, NATO and works. yet, and and yet, US is spending you know a great deal. I mean, that, it, how that money is spent, the US spends a great deal of money on technology. The rest of NATO is spending a great deal on procurement. You know, a lot of it is buying US developed technology. Uh, I mean, is if we're going to move forward and spend more, I'm sure European nations uh, like BAE Systems, for example, and, uh, and and Airbus and the like would be saying, "Well, okay, we want a bigger slice of this pie because we, you know, we've got brain power here too." Yeah, I mean, look at the F-35, F-35 fighter, depending which variant you go for, but let's say broad figure, hundred million dollars a piece. 
uh, th there's a, a bit of the F-35 comes from every single U.S. state. Now, is that just that just happens to be where those industries are or is, is there domestic politics to play there? I think it's very much the latter. Um, the debate about the next generation fighter jet is that do, do we just we in Britain, do we just say, well, I'll tell you what, F-35 is pretty good and F-16, let's just get a few of those. Or do we want to or do we want to have our own sovereign de defence capability so that we can make our own choices, uh, have our own industry? Um, I mean, I was speaking to the, the shadow, um, John Healy, shadow defence minister some time ago, and I was asking him about the, the old idea of, of where you put your defence money. Do you, for example, buy your fleet support ships from South Korea? Where they are cheaper, and you, you sort of get you know literally more bang for your buck, yet more of them for the amount of money you, you're willing to spend, or do you spend that money in UK and get get fewer ships, literally smaller number of of ships, but a lot of the money goes flows back into the UK in terms of wages and so on and so forth. And this this debate is has been rolling around for decades, forever probably. Did he, did he give an but, answer to that question? Yeah, no, he was he was very clear. He said, he said it should go to the UK, which I said, well, that was an interesting policy position. That's not not been so explicitly stated before. So it's seeing the defence budget partly as a as a domestic consideration, whereas you, you would you would want your military to have have the best the best equipment um, they could have, even if that well it, debate. Do you want your military? have the best equipment it can, even if that means that the money and therefore the jobs, uh, some jobs are, are overseas, or do you see it as a as a domestic job creation scheme, in which case you funnel it into the UK, it might take longer, it might be more expensive, you'll get fewer items of equipment for the, the same amount of spend, but the money goes into UK taxpayers' pockets and is spent in our high streets and so on and so forth. I mean, it is both, both are perfectly reasonable um, policy positions. It's just that <laughs> well, the, the idea the ideal outcome would be that actually we you know that we develop more that is that is procured globally wouldn't it that we we and maybe but, but we, a, are, we are the fount of all the wisdom that goes into the defense industry and that we and therefore the money comes to us yeah as well. so in the ideal world i guess the advantage in the united states as well is that a lot of the money that is invested in uh, in defense in this research and development which is is state funded or individual state funded as well as federally funded a lot of that uh Technology is then used uh, in in non defence areas as well, which you know it's the the intelligence that goes. Dom, just as we sorry, just as we bring this to yeah. a close, obviously the, the, the defence procurement thing is a whole uh, area that could go on uh, very complicated and, and difficult to resolve. And you bring in cyberspace right at the end as well. Ah, there's a whole other there. podcast. Well, there. let's let's just let's just take one line just to finish this off, which is. Given that NATO's position in this and this proxy war it's fighting, what do you personally think, Dom, are the risks of NATO being drawn into this war, whether you know Putin wants them to, whether NATO wants them to, that in this situation, almost unprecedented, the scale of war in Europe in the last uh, half century, um, what are the risks that NATO will be drawn into an actual fighting part of this? I war? think slim, which I think seeds the advantage to Russia because they... they they will know that I think any decision NATO would be uh, would lean on the risk averse side of the ledger, and I'm, I'm thinking in terms of the um, the maritime flank here in Ukraine, trying to get the grain out. So you could look to the Black Sea nations, let's say Turkey, Romania, Bulgaria, those with a those with you know, with a coastline in the Black Sea. You could say they are yeah they're very capable countries with with a good good um, good defence. Uh, uh, capabilities, so they could 
put together a sort of maritime coalition of the willing to to break the blockade and say, well, we are going to we are going to escort these ships through to Odessa to get the grain out and um, and you know feed feed the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now they might elect to do, to do that as um, as an individual basis or as a sort of like I say a coalition of the willing. They can talk of Egypt getting involved with that, that kind of plan. But Putin would, would paint this as NATO because they are NATO members. Even if NATO say, look, it's nothing to do with us. If Turkey wants to send their ships up there and, and protect the grain supplies and they're going to do it with a bit of help from Romania and a bit of help from Bulgaria, that's up to them. But Putin will paint that as NATO. So NATO as an armed body, the North Atlantic Council are not going to sit down and say, right, let's go and uh, let's go and take the fight to Russia. That's not going to happen. It's, well, it's not going to happen. But individual, individual countries taking, taking action um, – no matter how they want to categorize it, if Putin says, "Well, this is NATO doing X, Y, and Z," so the the idea of NATO involvement might, might be might be introduced against their will, and then suddenly uh, it it might be politically um, too damaging for those countries to do that. In which case, you know, it, it's it's a very tricky position the, to the be. Big in wars be not, begin by accident in Europe, as we know, and um, in the past, and almost, and um, people, you know, whether it's sleepwalking into it or, or incidents, of course, can precipitate this. Don, we're going to have to end it there. Thanks so much for being with us here on the Y Curve. That's uh, Dominic Nichols, Defence and Security Editor at the Daily Telegraph, in a very interesting and rather pertinent edition of the Y Curve. Yeah, thanks, Dom. Thanks, guys. And next week we stomp heavy-footed into another battleground. Uh, we haven't lined up our guests yet, but I'm sure we'll be able to pull it together. We're going to look at the big debate on gender fluidity. Imagine two middle-aged white guys trying to get on top of that one without upsetting anyone. Can that be done? Probably not. Uh, we're bound to upset someone, but, you know, for people of our age, it is difficult to make sense of it all. So we'll give all of that the Y-curve treatment next week. See you then. The Y-curve.